Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all of your word, uh, including, of course, the book of Revelation. We ask that you would uh, open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We ask uh, this for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so uh, last week, we did not have a class. We had a speech. We had a uh, meeting here, and many of you, probably most of you, were here And in that, um, I said that I think the Church of Our Savior needs to be available to be the center of Christian vitality in the Diocese of Florida and in Mandarin. Uh, If you think that is arrogant, please, please uh, forgive me. I don't think that it, I, I don't intend it to be arrogant. What I intend, in fact, I don't even want to be better than churches. I just want to be available the Lord should use us um, in that way. So, um, to to that end, I, I get, let me let me qualify what I just said too. Uh, I don't want to be better than other churches because I want all churches to be great. I want us to be great, but they should be great too. We want them to be great. We rejoice when another church is thriving, but we need to thrive. And so. Uh, in order for us to know what thriving really looks like, I mean, we can kind of, you know, we kind of see what it feels like for us, but for what to see, let's look in Scripture. And so actually in the book of Revelation, before it gets real scary, um, we, have a, we have seven letters to churches uh, in uh, Asia, what's, what we would call Asia Minor. And... Um, and so I'm going to give you a little, we're going to go through those because Jesus is speaking directly to these churches. And he, um, four of them, I think, he says, you got, you got some really good things and you got some, some bad things. Two of them, he says, you got some um, great things. And one of them, he says, I'm going to put you, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So, um, so we'll save that one for last. Um <laughs> Seven-week series. Uh, part of that, I'm going to uh, be gone uh, to Israel. And uh, so I hadn't quite figured that out. We have some folks that might be uh, able to, to do that, but I hadn't, hadn't cleared that with them yet. So, um, so we, we, will have, we will have that uh, squared away by then. But I'll be here uh, through, through February. Uh, so all the first four, for sure. Now, when we, we went through uh, the book of Revelation, we spent two weeks on it when we did the E100 back in November, and a few people had read the book of Revelation, um, and many people had intentionally not read the book of Revelation because it, they kind of heard it's scary or that it's, it's confusing or such, and it really, let me say that for most of it, the, the part of this might be considered scary, and of course I spend... My whole sermon this morning is, is on Revelation as well. But um, so after about chapter 7, it gets uh, what we would call apocalyptic. And um, these, these images that d- don't make a lot of sense to us uh, because they just seem otherworldly. Well, they are otherworldly. And they are symbolic and they're very Old Testament, even though, um, and, and part of the reason we don't understand uh, the book of Revelation and the symbols in there so we don't really know our Old Testament very well. So it's good to learn your Old Testament. Um, but a lot of this, uh, a lot of the book of Revelation isn't to be understood in, in, um, in specifics, but to be sort of understood in broad strokes. 
So we understand that God is going to win and defeat um, evil, and he is going to return. So, um, so that's sort of the, the broad look at, at Revelation, and it is absolutely worth your time, uh, even if you don't understand it. Um, in fact, it's the only book that declares about itself, God declares at the very beginning, that whoever reads it will receive a blessing. So, uh, so I hope that you will receive the blessing by reading the book of Revelation. So, it is written by, uh, of course this is disputed, but my belief is this written by the Apostle John. Uh, sometimes he's called John the Revelator, if, um, if they're not quite confident that it was the same John uh, who was the Apostle John. But, um, but according to church history and church legend is probably... Um, makes it sound like it's not true, but uh, what's been passed down, the Apostle John was, was the one disciple who was not martyred, unless he was martyred after he wrote Revelation, which he was a very old man. But he um, had a ministry, and went actually to Ephesus, and was a sort of retired pastor, apostle in residence uh, there, and, um, and preached a sermon repeatedly that said, little children love one another. And he would get up, get up, and they would hold him, and uh, he would say that, and then he would sit down. Um, it was uh, it was for preaching the word of God that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which was off the mainland, uh, there in uh, off the coast of of what we now call Turkey. And um, and he was there, and yet. Being the apostle that he was, being the, the Christian that he was, he was uh, worshiping on the Lord's day. He was uh, in Patmos, suffering, living probably in a cave. I think you can. Uh, has anybody ever been to the cave of John the Revelator? So you, the, you guys have. Um, and is there a crack in the ceiling? It seems to. Is that just the stuff of art? Uh, um, the where the light shines down through the uh, the cave and don't recall that. Um, well, so that's sort of maybe just in, in art, but the, the idea is that the, uh, the, when he was praying in his cave on the Lord's day, he was in the Spirit. So he's suffering in Patmos, but he's in glory in the Spirit at the same time. Very, actually, I think, uh, helpful and comforting for us that even when things are, are not going the way we plan, I mean, you think about, it, I've served Christ all my life, and here I am at 90 years old. My retirement community is I'm you know, trying to find shellfish on, by myself on uh, some deserted island. He's in the Spirit. He was in glory. I'm going to read the first chapter, uh, nine, verses 9 through 20. Because this kind, of set, kind of sets us up. And, and, and the vision that we see of the Son of Man, of course, Jesus, is... Uh, a lot of Old Testament symbolic. I'm going to sort of explain it as best I can through uh, while I'm reading it. So this is not what you have on your uh, on your sheets, but just a listener. You can follow along on your phones or if you brought your Bible. Um, from the beginning with the ninth verse of the first chapter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, because he was declaring Jesus, he got exiled. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me the, uh, the loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, 
to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, a voice like a trumpet, I, it probably that's not the tenor of, you know, the, not a descriptive of the, the tone of the voice, like it actually sounded like a trumpet, but, but, but it was um, heralding, it was declaring, it was surprising. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, so remember, he's in a cave, but now he's in glory. He's in the Spirit. On turning, I saw seven, lamp, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands are one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Symbolizing what? What do you think? Purity. Purity, right? His eyes were like a flame of fire. What would that symbolize? Mm. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. He saw things through the lens of the Spirit, perhaps. He could see things with uh, particular light and insight. Lots of different speculation about that. His feet were like burnished bronze. Take a stab at that. What do you think? Permanence. Permanence, maybe. Weightiness. There's a heaviness, a gravity to that. Oh, I didn't finish. Like burnished bronze refined in a in a furnace. So it's it's uh, there is another sense of, of purity. Yeah, purity uh, and gravity. I think. And his voice was like not a trumpet this time, like the roar of many waters. Again, I don't think this is like the tone of the voice. If you have seen footage of the tsunami from, uh, from however many years ago that, that was, um, when, when the tsunami just killed hundreds of thousands of people in Southeast Asia, or if you've seen a dam break and, and the water coming, roaring down the, uh, uh, the river valley, there's no stopping it. Right? It is going to take over whatever is in its way. And I think that is the sense of the voice of the Lord coming. His voice was like the sound of many waters. That it, was, it was going to overwhelm whatever was in its path. In his right hand, he held seven stars. He's going to tell us what those are in just a minute. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Do you think Jesus actually had a sword coming out of his mouth? What is the two-edged sword? The Word of God. The book of Hebrews says the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. So he's speaking words that, that are piercing. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Where do we see that before? Jesus, the face of Jesus shining like the sun. The transfiguration. So you can see, I mean, we're walking through this very weird d- description of Jesus. We can see how it's symbolic. And we see that we can actually... In some sense, understand. Actually, the book of Revelation was written for understanding. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, I think it would have been uh, so alarming, so wonderful, uh, so holy, that John would have fallen down, even though John was there on the mountain seeing uh, the transfiguration. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So if if there's any question, uh, we know that it is Jesus. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, basically, I think, so I don't have to use these keys. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, remember I told you he's holding them in his hand, but he's going to say, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, uh, that would be the seven stars, uh, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, think about, um, like, for instance, the parable of the, of the ten virgins where half of them had the oil in their lamp, this is Matthew 25, and the half of them ha- had the oil in the lamp and half of them didn't, and, and they, those that had the oil were able to receive the bridegroom upon his return. Why is that? Why, who cares if they have oil for their lamp? Why does that matter? It's so their light could shine, right? So the, the churches are the lampstands because they are um, to, to shine. Now it says the seven stars are the seven angels. As you can imagine, it's, Quite a bit of speculation. Does it mean like the spirit of the churches? Is there an actual sort of guardian angel over each of the churches? One commentator I read said these are actually the pastors of the churches. I particularly like that uh, uh, <laughs> translation of that. He's a, a star in the hand of, of Christ. Um, but it's the, it is it is there is clearly a sense in which whatever it is, it is something sort of overseeing the church as a as a. a uh, Cognitive being, whether it's an angel or the pastor or the, um, or just the sort of the essence of the church, and and so Jesus has come to John and he said, "Write this down." Now, uh, each of these letters to the churches, they weren't sent individually; they were all sent all together. And I think I said last time it'd be like you know if you uh, go out. Um, on a chilly January morning to pick up the paper in your driveway because you're old school and you still get the paper that way. And you uh, get back inside with your cup of coffee and you open it up and it says, Jesus Christ has visited Jacksonville. Turn to page two to see what he says to First Baptist. And page three to say, hear what he says to 1122. And page four to you know, and just down down the line, all the way to page seven, Church of Our Savior, <laughs> on display for everyone to see. And I, you know, again, like I said last time, I don't, whenever I think about this, I think, well, what would he say to us? What would he say uh, to Church of Our Savior? Um, would it be among the ones that he says, you know, you're doing really good on, on the one hand, but this one thing I have against you? Would he say, man, you, I'm with you, you're doing great? Would he say, I, you're neither hot nor cold, and I will spit you out of my mouth? I, I gotta say, I don't think he would say that to us. I don't think so. I think he'd probably say, you're doing really good in some things, and I got a couple things I want to say. Which is what he says to the church in Ephesus. So, um, Ephesus was a church of about 200,000 people at this time. Massive city for this time. Very important uh, city commercially. It had been for a long time, although I'm told the, the bay actually got silted and they didn't have you know, big barges to take out the silt. 
So that kind of um, uh, hindered some of their, their sea commerce, and yet it was still a very important uh, in terms of uh, commercial land commerce, a uh, very important city for the Roman government, um, and very important religious city. If you, if you, are, if you look in the book of, of Acts, we'll, you'll see that when Paul is preaching, they get real upset in Ephesus because they think that what Paul is saying, and, and they're, they're right, they perceive that what Paul is saying is going to um, be a, uh, a threat to the, the great goddess Artemis. And they have this uh, temple of Artemis is considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was also, they also had a temple, an imperial temple there, where you would go and worship the Caesar there in Ephesus. So very, religion was very important. But it was also a, a, a city. It was a city known, sort of notoriously, for its immorality. You can imagine a lot of a lot of people coming in and out, very transient. What happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus, right? So, um, uh, living in Ephesus, though, there was also a a very uh, prominent, influential, wealthy uh, Jewish community, and so um, so Paul had a, a sort of an audience that was expecting to um, expecting Messiah. Now, on, on some level, anyway. So, Paul had spent three years there. And we read about that in the book of Acts. Three years, probably just as long as he spent anywhere other than Antioch before he, before he began his ministry. Uh, he had a wonderful relationship with the people in Ephesus. Uh, they had vibrant missionary work. The, the uh, church in Colossae uh, down the road, which was um, which started by Epaphras, I think. And that was... Um, Epaphras had learned about Christ in Ephesus from Paul, so there was just vibrant missionary work going out. And, um, and then after Paul, he had put Timothy. You may remember the books of First and Second Timothy. Those letters are written to Timothy as he is the um, pastor, or the, the bishop uh, over the house churches there in Ephesus. And so Paul was there, Timothy was there, now John had been there. I mean, just a lot to sort of be really proud of. Well, a pretty important history there. But you know what happens when a church gets proud of itself, right? So, um, there's a fine line. And in fact, you know, when, when I, let me say this, when, what, what just happened here? When I talk about we need, we need to be available, we need to thrive for the good of the diocese, we need to thrive for the good of Mandarin, um, I think one of the things about being available to be the center of Christian vitality is that once you think you've arrived, you have uh, you you've lost. Once you think you're important, you you've missed the boat, right? So we want to. I don't want to ever get to a place where I say, "Look at us, we are the center of Christian vitality." We always want to be looking at Christ and allow Him to work through us if He should choose to use us as the center. We just want to be available. Right? We never... I mean, I, you're going to have to keep me accountable because I like to be proud of y'all and I certainly like to be proud of myself, uh, which Amy would be glad to tell you. So, um, so there's a fine line. They had every reason to see, you know, when, when we, if we uh, achieve that, if we become this, the center of Christian vitality in the Diocese of Florida or in Mandarin, We'll be able to see a lot of the fruit and experience and enjoy it. And uh, it will be a part of our own spiritual discipline to be thankful, not proud. Right? So, um, 
let's let me read the um, the letter to Ephesus that again would have been on display. This is Ephesus, this would have been like the mothership, the mother church uh, of of Asia Minor. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Remember, you know, if, if you're looking at a red letter Bible, this is all in red letters. This is this is Jesus right to the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you have this, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Each of the letters starts like that, to the angel of the church in Smyrna or angel of the church in Pergamum. And then it has a descript- each letter has a description of Jesus that harkens back to that first chapter that I just read. So here we see the words of Him who holds the seven stars. Keep doing that. I'm holding my coffee in my right hand. Holds the seven stars in His right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He, what a comfort to know. He's, he's got us in His hands. He walks among uh, the churches. I don't think that there is any reason to think, well, he doesn't do that anymore. That was just those seven. This is, seven is the number of perfection uh, in Scripture. I'm not a numerologist. I don't put uh, too much in that, but I think clearly in a, in a work like Revelation, that's important. And I think this is saying this is for all churches. All of these are for all churches. This is why it's on display for us. We need to learn from these churches. They had a lot going right. They were doctrinally strong. Doctrinally faithful. They had endured a lot of false apostles coming in, self-proclaimed apostles coming in, and um, teaching things that were not according to Paul's teaching, would not have been according to Jesus' teaching. Uh, and, um, and they had stayed faithful. They had... Uh, gone so far as to kick those teachers out. And yet, Jesus says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. How is it? How is it that they can have good doctrine and have such faithfulness to the pure Word of God and yet have lost their love for God? What do you think? Aren't, I mean, aren't those kind of the same thing? No. no. We've got it made so we don't have to do anything now. We've got it made so we don't have to do anything? We don't have to do anything else. We've got it made. We did what he said. And we said. Okay. 
So we've checked the box. That's that's one that's one sentence. Yeah, what what else? Say sitting on their laurels. Yeah, resting on their laurels. I was thinking it was parallel with where the Pharisees had gone wrong. Had more to do with them and position and, and starting to become more about everything else other than God and how it business basically the business of religion operated versus it become the so Mike says it's kind of become the business of religion. You know, which is which I mean can happen. Let me tell you, like you can get real. And I'll tell you this firsthand experience. You can get real busy with the work of God and lose God in the midst of that. Um, yeah, Josh. I would say it's kind of something that I know that at times I've struggled with is, you know, learning about God and studying the Word just for the knowledge side of it, not actually applying it. Right. And and not you know taking it. So how do I? How's that affect my life? Just versus. I really want to learn it and know it so I know it. Yeah, and it's good to know it, isn't it? It's good to know it. I mean, that's why we have Bill's study right up there, uh, you know, on the, uh, on the wall. We want you to know Scripture. We want you to know the, the good doctrine. Remember when Paul says, um, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And it seems like knowledge had puffed up in the church in Ephesus. Uh, because love... I had had lost it, had, it. The knowledge lost its substance. It's, you know, think about a marshmallow. It's puffed up. It's squishy. It's big, but it's squishy. And they'd lost their substance because they'd lost their love. The love is the thing that really mattered. Religious zeal without love can be a terrible burden. John chapter 1, verse uh, 14, I think. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's not think that doctrine is not important. Jesus came full of truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He, uh, it is, doctrine is important. What you believe, what you know about God, what you adhere to Scripture. This is, this is why we are so concerned, or I am so concerned, uh, to be teaching Scripture. Because Jesus came. Oh look, there's award-winning chili. And my beautiful wife. Um, Jesus came teaching the truth about God. Right? And he, what did he do? He barreled through the religious establishment to do it. Truth is important. But he came full of grace and truth. What is grace? Unmerited love. Love that says, I love you no matter what. I love you despite yourself. I love you uh, no matter how far you run away from it or how much you resist. Uh, no matter what you've done, I love you. And when the church only does grace, or only does love, but has no truth, it begins to look a lot like the culture around it. It is incredibly permissive, but not incredibly stable. But when the church is only doctrinal and has not love, it's cold. I've often called that being dead right. Because it's, you're right, good, good for you. 
But you're dead right. There's no life to it. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And let me tell you, those are messy. Because sometimes giving grace with truth doesn't have neat lines. It doesn't fit in a box. I mean, you know this from being a parent, right? I mean, if, if, they, if, if, if they break the rules, then they break the rules, except when they say, I'm going to find something else. You know, like it just is, um, it, it, when you love your kids, you got to have rules. You can't just be permissive all the time. It creates monsters. But when they break the rules, you got to decide when I'm going to crack the whip and when I'm going to bend a little. Because it's messy. Grace and truth is messy. It's messy in the church. We don't have cookie cutter laws for everybody. We have you know rules and guidelines and things like that. But sometimes we got to make exceptions. Why? Because we don't have cookie cutter people. Cookie cutter situations. So, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But it's all, I mean, love. God is love. What did um, St. Paul write to Timothy, who was, while he was the pastor in Ephesus, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Doctrine is important. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. It issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Someone, not unlike myself, who is very doctrinally oriented, can very easily slip into having to be right rather than having to be loving. Or to be right without being loving. Now sometimes, you have to do what you have to do, and it is loving, and you will be accused of not being loving. But, that's what really, it ends up being between you and God. But we as Christians must have truth, but we also must have love. If we as a church, as a parish, as a diocese, if we forget that the love of God flowing in us is actually given to flow through us, if we forget that and just become consumers, we will rot on the tree. And that's what fruit is. Fruit is, is to be is sweet and wonderful and beautiful on the tree, but it is to be taken off and enjoyed by somebody else. And if not, it just rots there and falls to the ground. So your, the fruit of this parish is to be, and, and of all churches, is to be given, uh, given away. Right? Enjoyed by us? Of course. Of course. What a wonderful thing that we get to enjoy what God is doing here. But it's not for us. He says to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. In other words, remember the grace. Remember who you were before you heard about Christ. Remember where... Um, uh, remember... Th- how you got knocked off your pedestal. Remember where you, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, do the, do the, I mean, in the context, it's not just saying, it's not about works like I'm, you know, have more outreach programs or something like that. Let the love of God flow through you like you did at first. When you were a vibrant missionary center. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So you guys, when y'all went to Patmos, did you get to go to Ephesus as well? Did you see? Yeah? Did you get to worship with the church there in Ephesus? No. Mm, why is that? Well, well, but you couldn't have. There's not a church there. They did not. And this is not. I don't think this is Jesus saying, "If you don't, then I'm gonna." This is saying, "Is the the fruit's gonna rot on the tree and it's gonna fall to the ground because that's what happens." I don't think this is him being uh, ugly warning. This is a, a compassionate warning. He says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Wouldn't it have been nice for him to tell us what that was? You guys read the um, Left Behind series years ago? Um, the, the bad guy, the, uh, the Antichrist, his name was Nikolai on a Karpinski or something like that, I can't remember. Uh, let me just say that that's, I, I don't what is it? Oh, with the Nicolaitans? Yeah. Well, okay, go. You got Theopedia. 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 Didn't know there was a thing, but Theopedia. And um, basically, they kind of decided that the law of God was over so people could um, participate in sin. Okay, so they would have been... Well, the thing is, that's, that is one theologian's guess, because it's not... It's not um, Gnostic. So they could have been Gnostic. They could have been ascetics. So that that um, very stern, uh, uh, putting away the all pleasures of the world. They could have been um, uh, permissive uh, Epicureans, and you know what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. Go go with it. Um, so it, it, we're not really sure. It doesn't tell us. Uh, there is a lot of speculation about it. Yeah. They all distorted the truth, for sure, for sure. So Nikolai, um, whatever his name was in the Left Behind series, he was named after these guys. Um, and actually, it turns out, uh, I, I didn't know this, Nicholas, Nik, Nikolaos, which has been the original word, um, it, it, that name in Greek means uh, he, he shall conquer humanity. Interesting. And then he finishes... This letter, like he finishes all the letters, uh, with this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and this is unique to the Ephesians, to the one who conquers, I I assume that's to the one who repents, the one who, who gets back to their original love. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In other words, love is the ticket to the paradise of God. And what you will have there is um, you get to eat from the tree of life. We will flip over to Revelation 22, second verse. Well, let's start with the first verse. Then the angel showed, this is the very end of all things, Then the well, all things present, uh, the beginning of all things to come. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is in the, the great whatever it is to come. You die, you go to, we say you go to heaven, but you really go to Atlanta, right? <laughs> um, you, you, you go to, you know, you go to, you go to Atlanta before you go anywhere else uh, when you're on a flight. You're going to the holding place. You're going to Terminal B where they have the TGI Fridays. And then when Jesus comes back, you get to go to the final destination. And after the, you know, and, and so, so the, um, <laughs> the, um, that when Jesus comes back, that's the, that's the final destination. So this is the final destination with the tree of life, right? That's not Atlanta, thanks be to God. Um, the, um, and, and, and if you re- re- retain that love or return to that love, it was so gracious. It was such a, an invitation to come back. You know, it's not like you lost it, you're out. It's come back to it, please. That love is the key to, I mean, it's allow, having that relationship with God, repenting is, is, is not just stopping your bad works and starting good works again. Repenting is uh, coming to the end of yourself and relying on God and letting His love flow through you. And if you do that, you can be assured that you will have um, your place in the paradise of God. So, Church of our Savior, what are we to take away from this admonition to the church of Ephesus? What do you think? Our goal is to let uh, his, love. his love flow through us to adore Him, to serve Him. Yes. Okay. Not to get too big for our britches. Not to get too big for our britches. That's right. That's Watch. right. Watch. Yeah, I like that. Watch. Pick the fruit when it's ripe. Pick the fruit when it's ripe. That's that, I like that, Frank. That's good. So I think I've told, I may have told the story before. When uh, I was an intern at Church of um, the Parish of St. Helena in Beaufort, South Carolina, under the uh, tutelage of Frank Limehouse, who was the dean in Advent that I worked for. This is in Beaufort, South Carolina, and I was in seminary, and I went there. And it was really Frank that taught me how to preach and how to look at Scripture and everything. And, and I gave my first sermon, and they clapped. <laughs> and he caught every he caught us all kind of off guard and Frank got up to you know the announcements and was just giggling because I mean you don't clap for a, for a sermon it was my parents were there had driven down from Columbia and they were beaming <laughs> I mean they just were about them they just were so proud and it was wonder. It was you know. And Frank looked at them and said, "Don't be proud. Be thankful." <laughs> and that has stuck with them. In fact, many times they've said, "I don't care what Frank Lionel says. I'm proud of you." Like you know, but um, but it has stuck with them. And it really has kind of become a thing in our in our family. Just uh, sort of a joke, but sort of a, you know a cautionary thing. Don't be proud. Be thankful. God is doing amazing things here, and He's going to continue if we avail ourselves to Him. Hold on to that first love. Don't be proud. Be thankful. Amen? Amen. All right. Good church.